Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Today, I'm talking to Lula Ellender. She's the author of two books. Her first book, Elizabeth's Lists, is a memoir telling the story of her grandmother's extraordinary life through the lists she left behind. Her latest book, Grounding, Finding Home in a Garden, tells the story of a growing season in her own garden in Sussex and the aftermath of her mother's death and explores the questions around why we garden and the very human urge to lay down roots and create beauty. Lulu's also a creative writing teacher and a writing mentor. Thank you so much for being here today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, it was such a joy reading Grounding. It was actually sitting on my shelf for a little while. It came out in May. Is that right? Is that April, May? beginning of April. April. April, and it's sitting there for a little while. I, I had to put myself on a reading ban for a little while. I was working on a few deadlines and it's been sitting looking at me and it has been such a pleasure to pick up. I can't even tell you how many things in there are exactly what's going on with me and my writing at the moment. So we can just oh, need to dive into that. that. But I just wanted to start with this, with something that you wrote about in there, um, this idea that creating a garden is um, is almost like part of us trying to recapture some of the magic of, of childhood and our child and a childhood outdoors. And at the same time, that kind of duality of both yearning for something you have lost, but also trying to create something new at the same time. Yeah, I was so interested in the idea of these childhood gardens that we kind of carry within us somewhere. And it's not necessarily that we try and plant the same plants in our own garden, but it's something of the spirit of how it felt to be a child. So often gardens were the first places that we could kind of play without someone monitoring us. We had a bit more freedom. There was places you could hide and be unseen. And so I've just been so interested when in my research about can we create that sense of freedom and play and safety? And for a lot of people that I've spoken to, that's what their garden provides them Mm. and it may not be that they had a garden like that but often it's like a grandparent's garden or a place that felt very safe to them um so yeah I was really interested in that and then for for me it was the this idea of a a yearning for a house that we lost when I was young when my parents got divorced and my dad went bankrupt Um, and that house kind of haunted me for my whole uh, teenage life and into my adulthood actually I kind of had this fantasy that one day I would be able to buy it back or that you know rightfully it was mine and um, so yeah I was interested in how much of that place I was trying to reconstruct in my own garden here that's nothing like that kind of in Mm. terms of the physical space. Yeah, that's so interesting. I have really similar feelings about one of my childhood homes as well at the moment. And it's something I've been writing about at the moment as well. So it's just, it's so interesting. It feels like your book has found me at exactly the right time, which is, is yeah, funny things about books, how they do that sometimes. But also um, the thing I found really interesting about the structure of the book is that you do, it is set over one season. um, And not only do you weave in um, parts of your mother's gardening notes, um, which is a really beautiful way of taking us through the season and our connection, uh, watching that connection between you and your mum after she has died, but also you weave in the stories of lots of other writers and artists and creators who have pour their heart and souls into gardens and take us through those gardens as well. Was that really clear to you from the beginning that that's what you wanted to do to sort of join up those two journeys, your journey um, in the year after your mother died and also the journey that other artists and writers before you have gone through? 
Yeah, I think that's the kind of writing I'm really drawn to is where there's a personal narrative that's interwoven with kind of wider stories. And there's part of me that really resists that personal narrative bit. I think who on earth is going to care about my story? And uh, I, I find that quite difficult. And it's something that I had to work quite hard at to put more of myself into both of my books um, because, it, yeah, it feels like it's a bit kind of indulgent in a way just to go on about myself. But they're the books I really love that I... I find that I connect to if there is a personal story. So I wanted there to be that balance and I hoped that it wouldn't be too me, me, me. And I hoped that what I wanted it to feel like was I was taking you by the hand and leading you round mm -hmm. at the gardens um, and thinking about the people who made them and the kind of ghosts that these gardens contain and the, the creative, I was really interested in creativity and the creative act of painting or writing or gardening and how those all kind of, um, interconnected in these people's lives. Mm, and I think that comes across really, really strongly, this idea that um, a garden is a place of creation. It's not always necessarily the way we feel about them. At the moment, for instance, um, I've got this feeling of like I can't, you know, I'm a single parent and one of my children has very high needs and my garden's actually the thing that's suffering. And often for me, and I don't know if you've ever felt like this at different points in your life, it's sometimes the writing or the gardening. Um, and I think perhaps because it both takes such a lot of creative energy that I don't necessarily always feel like I have um, the creative energy for like the energy for both of those things at the same time. Yeah, I think that's so true. And it's, you know, in a way, a luxury to have the time to go and tend a garden. Um, but I think you get so much back from it. The kind mm -hmm. of flip side of it is that it, it makes you feel more relaxed and it makes you, I, I found it a place where I could go and work through things. So even if I didn't really have time, five minutes of just, you know, pottering around and doing some deadheading gave me more than five minutes scrolling on Instagram or Twitter would have done. And so I think it's so valid. And I, But there's a, so, um, there's a writer who's written a book called Five Minute Gardens, Letitia McClouf. And she very much comes from that place of I don't have the luxury of hours of free time, mm -hmm. but I have five minutes a day and you can actually get quite a lot done. Um, but yeah, I think it's that horrible thing of feeling like everything needs you and you're not doing any of it properly. And in, like now I go out in my garden is completely neglected because I've spent the whole summer talking about it and not <laughs> doing any work out there. And it looks really quite terrible and brown and dead. And someone turned up today and they, I was so embarrassed because they know I've written a book about it. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. It doesn't look very exciting. Um, but I think you just have to do what you can and if, yeah. you just, if that means just sitting in an overgrown weedy patch and eating blackberries off a bramble then that's yeah. good <laughs> but also I love this as well and I, I need to get into the habit of doing a five-minute garden that sounds like a great book it definitely sounds like a book for me um I think as well partly perhaps because I have a home in my childhood like you had one um where um where the garden was such a big deal um and it feels like and also because I love the garden so I want to to do it I want to spend time in it I think if I just didn't care it wouldn't matter would it but I think yeah. because you do care but um the idea that you can use gardening as a way to process things I know I definitely do housework in a way of processing stuff that I'm writing mm -hmm. so I will go off and hang up laundry and mop floors and I'll work through a scene problem at the same time um, I think I need to start doing that with gardening for sure I feel like it would feed me more than mopping the floor <laughs> I think you just do whatever you you know, there's no shoulds and I think that's the problem that gardening can feel quite daunting and I think if people don't have lots of experience they think well I can't do it and lots of people have come up to me and said oh I just can't garden everything dies and I think well you know 
just find the right plant and put it in the right place and it will be all right and mm. you know I'm trying to cultivate a garden that really looks after itself and doesn't need loads of watering when there's a drought and that can resist climate change a bit and so I think there are ways around it to have mm. not loads of work to do but to think of the work as a, a kind of nourishment as much for you as it is for the place and I know that's easy to do when you're feeling okay and you know life isn't really difficult and but I do think that you know so many people I came across in my research you know refugees traumatized people found such solace and just having a bit of land mm. to work. I, I do think there's so much in that yeah and I and on that note those elements of the book the um the kind of non-fiction elements that um was so strong and so beautifully woven in. Um, I really enjoyed reading a lot about garden history and about there's some plant history in there and about the migration of some of the plants that we use in, in our gardens. Um, and so I, from my point of view, I was just, I guess I was wondering as well, is that part of what drew you to the project as well, being able to kind of really kind of go deep into that research? Yeah, in fact, the book started off being an exploration of homesickness. It wasn't really about gardens at all. I was looking at those experiences of exile and mm. what it means to be uprooted. And I couldn't really make it work. It wasn't really hanging together. And I had a conversation with my editor and she said, why don't you write about your garden? And that was where I kind of thought, oh, yeah, absolutely. That gives me the structure. That gives me the arc. I'll do a, a, a garden, a season, a growing season in the garden. And that will give me something to hang all these stories on. Because before... It was just a lot of, my agent calls it monkey tennis when it's like ping, ping, idea, ping, ping, ping. <laughs> and I, it wasn't really hanging together. So yeah, that was, the garden became the way for me to peg all those stories into mm. something a bit more coherent. Yeah, well, that sounds really familiar, the monkey tennis, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I love that, that. <laughs> Ooh, An idea, I'll follow it. Oh, another one, I'll follow that. Da-da-da-da. <laughs> Um, there was something else that you mentioned in the book that really struck me as interesting and not something that we always hear is you said that that um, this idea of we don't we don't need to get back to nature. We are already a part of it. And it does. It struck me as really interesting. And I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about that and about this idea that we have of like um, uh, getting back to na nature is, is something that, that humans are supposed to strive for all the time. Yeah, I think we're told that we have to be in nature or to visit nature and that is lovely if you live in a countryside and nature's easily accessible to you but it isn't for lots of people I think one in eight people don't have any access to an outside space and you know if you're um, from a marginalized community being out in the countryside isn't often safe or appealing at all so I think we have to rethink all of that and to make to have this idea that we are all part of this community this huge community we might boundary things off and make fences and call it our garden but actually it belongs to a much wider history and to all the creatures that come and go and to the people around us so that if we have more of that kind of community approach to the nature around us maybe we'll look after the world a bit better and see ourselves mm. as part of it and not not these kind of lords who just go around getting what we can from it and exploiting things. And, you know, we're seeing the results of that this summer with this drought that mm. it's pretty terrifying that the, our approach just isn't working. And I think we can learn a lot from indigenous cultures that very much see themselves as part of the landscape, um, you know, and that, that treat the land with respect. I, I just think we've got it so wrong. Mm. And even even though it requires a huge systemic change that if just a few of us with our own little spaces can start to, to make those spaces 
more welcoming for other people or other creatures, then that's got to be a good thing. Mm, yeah. And and I have to say one of the, the, the positive aspects of me not being um, really on top of the garden is that we have quite a bit of a meadow going on at the moment. Right. I can at least look out into the garden and feel quite good about the insect life that we are cultivating exactly. there exactly. and providing a home for. Yeah. Um, and, and with the book as well, the thing that really struck me was this idea of the cycles of life that you talk about in the book. Um, it sort of permeates through everything that you talk about, actually. You know, there's a um, huge amount about death and growth and this kind of constant evolution in a way that happens in, um, in our lives and particularly around motherhood and how much motherhood kind of forces you to confront the kind of ever moving forwardness of life and how we can't go backwards again. Um, did it did it feel like a very natural thing to be writing about gardening and motherhood in in the same kind of in the same space? Yeah, it really did, partly because I'm writing about our family home and so my children are very much part of this place. But yeah, also because my children are my youngest is 12 and my eldest is 19. So they're they're beginning to you know, one of them is about to go off to university. So my role as a mother is really changing. And I wanted to, I, I needed to work through that. What does that mean? Like they sometimes need me and they mostly don't. And when they do need me, it's in a very different way. And what does that mean? And how do I be a mother better? Because I felt I wasn't doing a very good job. Um, so yes, it felt like a place where, you know, you're with children, you're nurturing them and you're constantly tending them. And it's a, it's a very similar sort of impulse, I think, um, to gardening. You're planting things, you're, you know, you're, you're planting things, moving them on, hoping that they'll be all right when you move them, um, trying not to worry too much. You know, it's, it felt like a really similar process to me. Mm. And the idea of the cycles, sometimes I found that quite relentless when I was kind of deep in the grief for my mom I just thought how can all this just be carrying on when something so terrible has happened to me about mm. this tiny little individual you know it's meaningless to anything else but there was something a bit like oh god it, nature's brutal it just keeps mm. going and it won't care it doesn't care about me and then that became this like amazing liberation I just thought my problems are tiny and this mm. garden will just be here when I'm long gone and it doesn't matter. I'll be all right. It will be all right. Everything will just keep going. And I've got some of my mum's plants in the garden and they'll be here when I've gone. And there are things in her garden that she planted that someone else can enjoy. And I, so I think there is this amazing kind of opportunity to embrace those, the cycles of life and death in a garden. Um, and, you know, even just leaving plants that are dead over the winter that create these beautiful kind of architectural sculptural forms and little habitats for beetles and things I think you can you don't have to tidy away death and I think mm. that was part of me working through that process as well death is messy and painful and how do you live alongside that yeah and um I think brutal is such a great word for it because it is it does feel incredibly brutal doesn't it when the world continues when nature continues and everything inside is you inside of you is screaming for everything to stop yeah um but yeah I think that's what struck me as so incredibly beautiful about what you've touched on in the book this idea of the relentlessness of life in some ways and that is both as you say brutal but also incredibly hopeful yeah, so there's this weird pull of the reassurance of these cycles because you know things will just keep going and you know that if your plants fail next year, there'll be another chance. Um, but also the sense of just your this kind of hamster in a wheel that's constantly going round and round. 
And also I was thinking as a perimenopausal woman, I thought my cycles are coming to an end. And what does mm. that mean is for my whole adult life, I've been governed by a rhythm and a cycle and soon I won't be. And how do I, how do I live without that sort of pattern as well? I was, I was working all of that out. I haven't really come to an answer. <laughs> it's really interesting. I've been thinking a lot about that as well, about how, um, what happens when our rhythm changes like that and not just, I mean, obviously, you know, um, when you become a parent, some of those rhythms are kind of imposed on you and you feel like they're going to last forever. And then very suddenly they disappear, you know, early childhood is gone in an instant and suddenly they're all at school and your and school very much dictates your rhythm It's school holidays at the moment. And it's very much dictating my rhythms. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, at some point that, that will go as well. Um, and yeah. And, and our own menstrual cycles as well, they, they, they won't last. And it is really interesting um, that, I guess the duality of feeling like something is going to be forever and realizing very quickly that it is already gone before you've yeah. realized. Yeah. yeah. And trying not to spend too much time looking back that you don't notice where you are. I'm really terrible at that. I'm deeply nos- nostalgic and romantic and I need to learn to live much more in the present. And yeah, that was something I tried to work on with my book. Like what is it to be in this garden right now in this moment? Mm. It will never be the same again. The light will never be the same. The plants were changing the bird that just flew over won't fly you know what is it about how do I be how do I be that's really what I was working like how do mm. I live? what does it mean to live yeah and that's something we haven't talked about yet that that the year that you write about is a year it was a year of huge uncertainty and you um thought that the house was going to be sold from you um it because it's a rental house and you've been there for a long time uh but there was um there was a death in the family right so it was changing the house was changing hands within the family um though that uncertainty is um it's always hard to underestimate how much uncertainty like that for us as humans can really absolutely shake us to our core and this idea that you have to learn to just live without uncertainty and you you just made the choice to kind of still pour yourself into the garden despite not knowing whether it would be yours the following year or not yeah so I'm a planner I like to have a, a structure I like to know what I'm doing and this sudden point where I had no control over my family's future was really difficult for me um, and I had to really learn how to deal with that and at first I you know tried to find out somewhere else to live and was like frantically organizing things and that wasn't working and the, the actual kind of probate dispute that we were stuck in the middle of went on for a really long time I've had to condense it in the book but it was like four years of this uncertainty really um, so I had to I had to find a way to live alongside that and of you know, of all the stories in the book, mine is the least important. There are people dealing with enormous, you know, mm. horrific experiences. And I didn't want to draw any sort of parallel between what was happening to me and those experiences. But there was this sense of uncertainty and that we're, as humans, we're not very good at that. And that how do we find a way to kind of just exist within that and not embrace it because it's horrible, but to just accept it and mm. to do what we can within it to make it feel better. And I realized I was holding on so tight to this idea that we belonged here and it was my place, even though we don't own it, that once I kind of let go of that and thought, I'll just try and make it as beautiful as I can for as long as I can, that just felt so much better. Mm. Yeah. I, and you, you really feel the shift in you as a reader we feel it you know this shift that you have between holding on tight um, and deciding to just let go and enjoy your garden enjoy being in it and enjoy cultivating it and, and whatever that someone else may have it and it won't be mine a little bit like children leaving home like 
they're going off to make their own lives and I hope they're okay and you know that's part of letting go as well yeah that they'll be you'll be there as a touch point but you won't necessarily be the sun to their planets anymore yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. um well let's talk a little bit about um your writing teaching now um so I, I would love to know what was it in particular that drew you to creative nonfiction specifically and now also to teach it as well as to write it? I just kind of fell into it, really. It wasn't an intention. I started out a long time ago writing a screenplay, which was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> um, and I must never be allowed near dialogue. <laughs> and I think that sort of put me off because I thought, I just don't know what I'm doing. And I started doing a bit of journalism. So I was kind of doing more nonfiction stuff anyway. And I think that's just the way my brain works. I really like, I did a history degree. I really like Mm. kind of real stories. Mm. And I don't feel my brain is particularly imaginative, but I think what it's quite good at is burrowing into things and making connections between things. So I think it's just the way my brain works. I would love to try some fiction though. I'd really like to just give that a go and see if it's, you know, just see what happens. I think there'll be something really freeing about it because I think I can tend to hide behind the research a little bit that mm. um, I, I, you know, I'll go off on these rabbit holes and spend days researching, you know, some random thing. And I think if if I don't have that to hide behind, I'll be interested to see what happens to my kind of work. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm finding it because I've, I've just written a novel and oh, it is such a different beast. Oh yeah, my I'm goodness. so impressed that you've done that. I mean, who knows what will happen with it, but it has been such an interesting process because it does feel very different in lots of ways and strangely more exposing because you can't hide behind any research. That's interesting. Um, which I think it's funny, isn't it? Because you know, I've, you and I have both written quite personal books. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think probably people would assume that that's sort of the more exposing thing. But in some ways, I I'm finding the fiction more exposing <laughs> almost like um almost like oh people can see inside my head now yeah. I mean I could have written about anything and I chose to write about this <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah but um so um so it's really it was really great to see that you you have some writing courses as well as teaching on other in other places you also have host some of your own writing classes as well can you tell us a little bit about that because I know often um I get people contacting me that are not ready for sort of full writing coaching book coaching because they're not quite there yet but they they would love to have a place to kind of just get started with life writing yeah so I do a range of things I teach on a um a course as part of the creative writing program in Brighton which is a two-year course based on a kind of MFA structure Mm -hmm. Um, but I also do some stuff as a freelancer as well because I found I loved that so much and I wanted to do more of it. And because the people I teach are at very different stages in their writing career, some of them are just starting out and some of them, um, you know, are almost ready to, you know, or they just want to get kind of polished, ready to send off to agents. Um, and the, I've, I've just really loved working with that whole kind of spectrum of people. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to offer a range of things. So they're online courses that you can just do in your own time, because I know that people often find it hard to commit to certain dates and things. So I wanted it to be flexible. So I, I kind of offer courses that you can sign up for or also book coaching packages that you can just sign up for as an individual as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping to do more of that. Um, and I've also just bought this cottage in France, which I'm so excited about. Mm. Um, and I'm hoping to run some writing retreats there or have it as a host place. You know, you're very welcome to go there. I want it Yay. to be a place for creativity and um, a place for res- restoration and respite from life. 
Um, I'd love to be able to offer some uh, childcare, so retreats for childcare. I might get my teenagers to come and do some babysitting. <laughs> um, and some subsidised places for people. You know, I just that's where I'd really like to go with my teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I was so excited when I saw that post the other day. It's like the absolute dream, isn't it? It's the absolute dream. And I, I hosted my first retreat earlier this year and I'm doing another one next year. Um, and I wish I could do more of them. It is so incredible to be able to host a retreat for, for particularly for people who are used to take constantly taking care of other people. Exactly. I just wanted someone to not even have to think about where the next cup of tea was coming from, that that would all be taken care of. Excellent. Well, we will very much be watching this space because (laughs) I will be coming for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. So with, with any listeners who are perhaps just starting to dabble in the idea of life writing, do you ever have, do you have a place or um, a kind of, any prompts or anything like that, that that you kind of recommend people start with, you know, if they're just, they just want to start dipping their toe into, into writing about life. Yeah. I mean, there's some amazing books about writing. And I think that depends whether you want to really knuckle into the craft of it, or if you want to get into your creativity. So there are two, I found two different kind of types of books about writing. So like the artist's way, those kind of books that are more about freeing up your creativity. Mm -hmm. So if that's something that you find you're blocked with, that might be a good place to start or writing down the bones, those kind of books that are much more about tapping into that. And then if you feel like that isn't what you need, what you need is some practical help about writing. Um, there's Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir. Mm. That's a really good place to start. Yeah. Um, anything by um, Anne Lamott, Annie Dillard. Um, read loads. I just recommend reading and reading and try and find what the kind of what are the books that you're drawn to and what is it about them and try and think how you could do that. Like even to the point of I used to go through a book and kind of make notes about what each paragraph was doing and then try and see what structure was emerging and think, oh, okay, they're doing it like this. And Mm. I found that really helpful. But also there's a, I do an exercise with my, um, with lots of my teaching workshops. Um, It's a poem called I Remember by Joe Brainard. And the poem is, you know, it's quite long, but I just use a section of it. And each line starts with, I remember, I remember, I remember. And I just get people to do that for maybe five minutes. And Mm. at the beginning, I think people feel a bit like, "Mm, not sure. And then suddenly this kind of, the the repetition of it just unlocks these amazing things that they didn't know they remembered. And they're not connected at all, but um, they're things you didn't know that you remembered. And out of that, people have done some really interesting writing. So if you want a place to start, that's a really good exercise. Just start a line with I remember and keep going. Um, yeah, I would say something like that, that's just, you know, making a list of things. My friend Tanya Shadrick um, recommends writing a list of things you love. Um, and she'd found some really beautiful stuff with that as well. So mm. just really simple exercises like that, just to get started. And there may be things that emerge in that, that you hadn't thought you wanted to write about, but actually they're the nub of it. So I think what often happens is people have a, think they have a story and when they start, actually it's a very different story and often a much more difficult story, but you have to kind of get through the layers of protection to get to that point. Yeah. Oh, I think that's so true. And I love lists as a way of starting and opening something up. Um, lists is what I recommend for people who are trying to come up with, with title ideas for their nonfiction and memoir books. Um, um, but I find it such a way of opening 
up something inside of you, especially if I find if you put a timer on and, and you're not allowed to stop until the timer goes off. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like you start to get uncomfortable because the timer's <laughs> not gone off. And then if you can push through that discomfort, sometimes you get to this really quite magical place of suddenly there's all these words written down that have a, a sparking some kind of memory and association and all sorts of things start to happen if you just kind of push just slightly longer than you think that yeah, feels comfortable. And that's such a good discipline, isn't it, for all writing that you just have to keep pushing past the bits where, you know, it's difficult because often people are writing about very difficult situations and I wouldn't want anyone to push themselves into a place that was too painful or traumatic but there's a kind of sweet spot where you think this is quite difficult but actually there's something interesting in there and I, I am ready to say it and I think other people need to hear it and yeah. those are the points that I think you have to delve right into um, but obviously there are things that you that you know, people should probably not write about if they can't you know if it's too difficult. Yeah absolutely and sometimes as well you need to write privately before you can write anything that's going to be shared, particularly if it's around a topic that's quite difficult um, and doesn't, and you're not quite sure yet whether it feels safe to share yeah. with anyone to starting, starting privately and then moving out. It's interesting. I think when it comes to creativity, I've always been a very big believer in, um, in following my curiosity and just allowing it to kind of lead me. And even though I don't know, where the path is going. I can't see the end of it. I can see like the next couple of stepping stones kind of thing. And that I can sort of trust myself if I keep going along those, that um, that if we sort of, if we find something really fascinating and interesting, there's a good chance that other people will as well and that you can kind of follow it along. Yeah. Um, but it's a difficult thing, isn't it, to learn how to trust yourself with that. Like you were saying, you know, uh, grounding started off as being about a homesickness type thing and it and it had to you had to follow that path until it led to where it ended up being. But um, that sense of trust is difficult, isn't it? It takes a long time to allow yourself to trust that process. Yeah, it really does. And I think that's where working with a book coach like you or doing a course can be really helpful because you have other people giving you some input and confirmation. And if you have an agent, that's so brilliant because you've got someone else there to kind of sound things off. So I think having a trusted reader that you can share things with can really help. Mm. Um, and um, and on the note of reading, I obviously am a huge fan of reading massively and widely as well as you're trying to find out exactly how you want to write. Um, do you have any favourite um, memoirs that you really recommend to people that like really speak to you personally? Yes, I so I love anything by Maggie Nelson. I think she's absolutely amazing. Um, it's such a difficult thing because it's so personal. So there are books that I recommend to my students because they're writing about food and I'll think yeah. of them while that really speaks to them about that. And then I've got this like brain thing where I just can't remember the last book that I've read. So I know I've just put down an amazing memoir, but I have no idea what it's called. <laughs> So, um, I'm so sorry should not have sprung that on you I'm so sorry I should have said in advance no, it's by the way fun. I'm going to ask you this question <laughs> so yeah Maggie Nelson like Bluets is a brilliant place mm. to start if you're into slightly more experimental um writing uh I love Olivia Lang's writing I think mm. she does that um weaving of other stories yeah, and she does doesn't she yeah uh, she's a kind of master at that um, there's some really interesting work. Tanya's book is fantastic, The Cure for Sleep. That's a kind of fable, so that's a really interesting angle. Just finished Ali Miller's Brilliant The Last Day, so yes. that's such a brave book. I think just maybe it's about finding a kind of subject area that you're interested in and, and reading around that as much as you can. So for me, it was kind of gardens with this book, but also 
ideas of uprooting and exile. So I was reading a lot around those subjects. Mm. Um, and then um, with and and back to those gardens as well. Um, was it really clear to you some of those stories that you just knew you had to include? I know you live in Sussex, so you've got some incredible gardens near you. Um, and I'm, I, I, I assume that you were very drawn to writing about those because you were able to access them as well. Yes. But, you know, just so incredible to be able to be walked through places like Monk's House and Sissinghurst and Charleston. Um, did you uh, did you have to kind of contact them and ask permission to write about them? Was it was it was it a difficult aspect that aspect of the book? Uh, no, that was really brilliant, actually. So I've worked with Charleston. Um, I've been writing residence there a couple of times and I've done workshops, writing workshops there. So they were fine. And you can just go to the garden. You don't have to book. It's free. It's amazing. Um, and most places are really happy for you to write about them. I did. Um, so in the section where I'm writing about Farley Farm and Lee Miller, I did run that by Anthony Pen Penrose because mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I'd got that right, particularly because you know, I was writing, it's quite personal, this stuff in that section for him and I, and he's still alive. And so I, I felt I needed to be careful around that. Yeah. Um, he very kindly read that chapter and gave me some notes on it. So, you no, know, the other people, um, I just felt that, you know, their stories are already fairly widely known, but yeah. maybe not through the garden. So it was okay. Yeah. Um, I, with my first book, I felt that more. So my first book uses my grandmother's book of lists that she left behind, um, she died when my mum was nine, so I never knew her. And I was very much exposing her story. And I had a lot of struggles about the ethics of that when I was writing the book. Like, mm -hmm. would you be horrified that I'm delving through her shopping list and showing people them? And But I kind of came to this point where if you do something with authenticity and integrity and the right intention, it's probably okay. Yeah, I think that's so important, isn't it? Because I know lots of writers listening will be going through those same struggles at the moment about making decisions about who they write about, who they leave out of stories, whether they're going to leave somebody out of a story, and this whole idea of permission as well when um, maybe only part of the story is in the public realm. Um, and it's just always such an interesting thing to talk about how writers come to the conclusions they do about what they share and what they don't share. Um, I know when I've been writing about my life, there's certainly lots of things I, I don't share, but it's just, it's an interesting process of working out um, where your boundaries are around that and, and how much, um, I guess as well, like it's the perspective that you come from as you're writing the story, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I kind of talk to my students a lot about that and the idea that you're not writing to get revenge or to enact some kind of righteous um, judgment on someone you're telling a story and it's your story and if you're very upfront about the fact that this is your truth and it may not be the same as someone else's truth and you acknowledge that from the beginning I think you can you can talk about most things I think obviously there are cases where you have to be careful for legal reasons or if people are still alive you don't want to make things really difficult but I think also that can be so crippling that idea mm. that someone might read um, what you've written that I, so I advise my students to write it anyway and worry about that later um, that's a job for like a legal department or there might be things they actually think oh I, I've got to take it out but get it down first because yeah. even if you don't include it it's valuable the process of of kind of processing it of, of working it through will have done something for your work yeah it's definitely deal I think for people it's such a it's so difficult and I think that we have to overcome first the hurdle of who's going to want to listen to me and then we have to come over the hurdle of oh my God, everyone's going to be really cross with me. And it's, it's difficult. It is difficult. It is, isn't it? And 
what's interesting, and I, I found this personally, and I know I've spoken to lots of other authors who um, post-publication can reflect on this, about the process of um, where a book started, what content was in it, and then what's had to kind of be pulled back, either for both legal reasons and also just relationship reasons. And um, and there's something quite amazing about the process of putting it down on paper. Sometimes, sometimes uh, a number of people I've spoken to have found, and I found this myself, some of it can just come out again, but somehow the flavor of what you've put down has really come across in the rest of it, even if it meant you've taken some of the facts away um, that you decided should remain private. Yeah, that's a lovely way of thinking about it, that it kind of imbues what you're writing with the sense of what you were trying to get at without you needing to say any of the actual stuff. Yeah, and that we can't know in advance. Like you say, yeah. you know, sometimes in a way you just need to put it down and then make some of those decisions later. Um, and the thing, the one really good upside about publishing taking absolutely forever <laughs> is, is that there are lots of opportunities to change things. Um, and I know, though, you know, a lot of people do think, oh, God, two years, you know, from being commissioned or whatever to being published, or, you know, that actually is adds an extra layer of protection for life writers as well. Um, I my editor reminded me a number of times. It's okay. You still have another chance to take that out. Yeah. It's still you still have another chance to change your mind. You still have another chance to add something in because the topic I was writing about was obviously very sensitive, and I wanted to do it in a way that felt really uh, truthful and authentic and uh, really respectful of the community I was writing about, and that reassurance her just reminding me time and again that it's still going through it's still got to go through copy edits it's still got to go through a legal read it's still got to go for final checks all that stuff was really reassuring so I think in a way if um anyone is going through that at the moment any listeners are going through that at the moment and you're still at the writing stage and you're not even anywhere near an editor looking at it there is so much opportunity to change your mind about what goes inside yeah that's such a good point Oh, well, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'm going to put in the show notes links to your website and your writing courses where people can access those um, and um, and also to grounding, which is just incredible. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country if you've enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe or follow and please leave a review it really helps others to find the podcast